You're listening to Hey guys, welcome back to First of All, a real unfiltered conversation on career, family, relationships, and culture. I'm your host, Minji Chang. I'm an actor, producer, and filmmaker here to share inspiring stories and to walk through everyday life with you. How are you guys doing? Hope you're staying safe and sane. That has become like the tagline that I share at the top of everything. I think starting with COVID episodes, maybe before, I might be wrong, but um, I'm. it's funny that that's become the thing. Especially right now, because not to start this episode on a negative note, but I've been feeling a lot of stress and anxiety over the fact that I've been having good things happen in my life lately. And this paradox, because maybe not even that paradoxical, but it just, I definitely feel a bit of guilt that I've been getting a lot of different blessings in life, booking things, um, getting funding for projects like a lot of good things have been happening and and because there's so much bad that's also happening and this has been an ongoing thing especially through covid but there's an actual war now where a million people have fled ukraine and there's so much tension and anxiety about what's going to happen and anticipating you know things getting more expensive and things like that like there's a whole mess of other crap that's also happening i've been feeling a lot of stress about feeling good um, and celebrating things that in the grand scheme of things kind of feel a little bit silly, but I don't want to, I don't want to rain on my own parade or anybody else's parade because I think that there is so much good and so much value in celebrating what you can, even when times are tough, maybe even, especially when times are tough. So anyway, I don't know if this is me just like, you know, starting my therapy session in this episode early, but if anybody can relate, I've definitely been going through a a roller coaster of feelings, um, good and bad, and feeling strange about being happy in dark times. So, yeah, there's that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. But going into this episode, you know, this is uh, actually a re record or revisiting of a topic that uh, I actually recorded a while back, but for multiple reasons, didn't feel like it was the right timing for that episode to come out. But I'm bringing on my friend James, who is a classmate, an old classmate of mine from acting school, and he's become you know a good friend over the years. And we had this really interesting conversation about being a late bloomer. I don't consider myself a late bloomer, but he definitely is. And the things that he shared with me, I thought were really insightful because it covers a range of things from friendships to work to dating and sex and like all these different parts of our humanity that come into play when you feel like you've entered the game of life a bit late. And obviously those are all very subjective. There's no finite, like you have to have reached this milestone by this age or this time. But in general, I think, you know, there are a lot of commonalities in society where we consider like, oh, this is early, this is normal, this is late. And yeah, so I I felt like it would be a really great conversation to have. I think James is a very articulate person, super introspective, and I I invited him to share his thoughts on first of all. So here we are with episode 169, also known as season two, episode nine. I haven't really figured out this numbering process because we switched it in the middle, so I apologize for the confusion. 
either way, getting close to the end of season two, but really excited to have James on for this episode to go through his journey being a late bloomer, the different ways that he was socialized and compared to mine, which is very, very different. And hopefully for anybody listening out there, there's something for anybody to learn, you know, the ways that we can interpret the world and how that impacts us. Because it can, you know, the smallest things and the biggest things alike, they can be very impactful and what makes us tick and what makes us scared and what makes us brave and how other people perceive us. There's a lot of projecting that's happening that I'm just, as a grown woman, I'm just realizing so deeply how much I've operated according to other people's expectations and how much I incorporated that into thinking that that's what I think I'm supposed to be. When in fact, I disagree respectfully, in some cases disrespectfully, but you know what I mean? Anyway, I'll stop this intro. Thank you to James for being such a great guest on the show. Uh, A little bit more on him. James considers himself a student of life before anything else, and he's explored the identities of being an engineer, an actor and model, and a business person working in the tech space. So... Yeah, hope you guys really enjoy this episode, episode 169, talking about being a late bloomer, ugly duckling syndrome with James Al. Enjoy. Yeah, came in 88 with a dream of so bright eyed. They knew right away, sick of swim, there's no lifelines. Cutting the teeth on the move. Welcome, first of all, James. Thank you so much for having me. You sound very calm. I am. I'm uh, very, very relaxed. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're relaxed and chill and uh, back on the podcast because uh, we had a practice go at this conversation, but um, I think we had enough time to marinate and evolve and grow since then. So I feel like actually this this conversation will be more fruitful. What do you think? I, I think so. I, many a moon has passed. I've never expected to practice <laughs> <laughs> talking about my past identity. And yeah. Past self. Well, you're talking to me, so what else can you expect, right? Like, Yeah, what, what else is new? <laughs> yeah, what else is new? Well, I'm glad you're here and um, got to do your little spiel at the, at the intro, but always give guests a chance to like introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners, James? Because we are talking to one another with who knows how many people listening. Oh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always struggle with that whenever I meet people is how to how to describe or identify myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like figuratively rolling up my sleeves right now. Like, what okay. I, maybe, maybe the best way to describe me is someone who is always trying to appreciate life more. Okay. And always trying to learn more about myself and the world around me. Love it. Love it. I think it's pretty spot on. If you had to fill out like a survey of like, I am James, I live in Blick. like, how would you, how you currently reside in, unless you want to like protect your location. I, <laughs> I live somewhere in California. I live in San Francisco, California, and um, I grew up in the Bay Area in San Jose and Saratoga. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah as South a Bay. very Asian child, um, you know, had engineer father housemaker mother older brother who's also engineer Mm. and um i was an engineer first and then i became a business person Mm. also artist 
Yes. I, yeah. So tell me, tell me when to insert other things into the picture. <laughs> well, I, I still, I mean, I, we've known each other for years, but you know, like our friendship has evolved. So I still get to learn more about you. Every conversation I'm like, oh, there's a new fact about James. So this conversation, I also feel like I will continue to learn more information. So we'll call this a discovery process as much as we're you know, you talk, you tell me that like talk, when we talk, it's like a therapy session. So we can call it that too, but <laughs> it's, it's also, I hope it's mutual, Minji. No, it is. It's fine. I, <laughs> I mean, you, I, this is, I live for this stuff as much as I've complained about this. You've heard me complain about the podcast and like, it takes so much time and energy, but it's also super fun. I love sitting down with different people that I find interesting and all of us spilling our guts and learning from our, each, each other and ourselves. The best yeah us asians we don't talk about ourselves enough well that's yeah i'd say in general yeah i i, I think i talk a lot which is trying to be uh, better you gotta make up for everyone who's not talking <laughs> no. well i i do it as uh in part well one because i can be a blabbermouth but in, also in part like i want to if other people don't want to i've been in a lot of situations where i I'm willing to volunteer as tribute because I'm like, well, damn it. If no one's going to talk, like I will, or like I'll break yeah. the ice or whatever. That's been a thing that I do, which yeah, is weird. Yeah. And I, th shy. I think honestly, you have a strong, strong degree of empathy and respect for other people. So Aww. I must say, what, if, if there is a qualified person to do so, it must be you. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. Oh, well, it's been fun. I want to preface, because I said this in the intro, but like, I've had so much fun being your classmate and watching you evolve as a person because when we first met each other, do you know what, do you remember what year that was? That when was did you join class? 2012. Holy crap. Oh my, oh my God. 10 years ago. Okay. So yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah. But how would you describe, like, I, I would say when I saw you, you were this ultra serious, like took, you took class seriously. You took the craft seriously. You also didn't seem as open and, and flowy as a person as you are now. And how would you describe it when you at first entered into our artistic sphere? That's, I think that's a good intro to our friendship, a certain point of view. Cause then we mm. can like unpack from there. How would you describe the moment that you started at Beverly Hills Playhouse? Oh, that's such a good segue. I, <laughs> I'm just like closing my eyes to visualize what happened back then. Yeah. The best way to describe myself is I was an INTJ, emphasis on the, the I and the J, definitely okay. very judgmental, very, I, I very much used my head to control my emotions until my emotions exploded. So oh, okay. it was one extreme to another. Very, mm -hmm. very interesting. That's why I think I was so serious. Um, mm -hmm. When I entered class, I had been thinking about going to business school because of falling in love with startups. And it made sense to me that I needed to learn how to express myself because of my lack of being able to do so ever since being bullied and being an engineer. And so I had very much shut down and suppressed my social side for the longest time ever since middle school. Mm. And acting to me was the logical academic step for taking me from engineering to an MBA. And at the time, um, I, I think one of my friends from Berkeley, Kenny, you know him, mm -hmm. um, he said, Oh, I'm going to, you know, Beverly Hills Playhouse. You want to come sit in class? And I was like, Why not? Let's be open minded about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I joined class. And I remember, I think it was Jenny 
she like enveloped me in a hug and I was like, oh, physical contact. What's going on right now? I don't know you. <laughs> um, too much, too soon, too much, too soon. Too much, too soon. What is this strange thing? Um, mm -hmm. But it was lovely because back then BHP with all the OGs was a warm family and mm -hmm. everyone was so passionate and there was less of the structure and ritual that sort of clouded it later on. Um, there was some of it, of course, because mm -hmm. of, that's what the class is known for. And also there's pros and cons to that. But I joined it and I realized that everyone in the class was so emotionally free. And I was like, wow, that's, I think that's what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And I sat in class and they gave me a book and I opened the book to the first page and the, the page said, um, acting is the study of life. And I'm like, I, I'm joining this class because <laughs> the context of that is the moment before was that I had an argument with my mom about being independent and I grabbed three bags of clothes and stormed out and literally crashed in the living room of my friend's apartment. Wow. Uh, and that, at the time I was an engineer at Intel. So I was like, I'm making my own money. I do want to develop my own life and my identity and choices and mistakes and freedom. And my, my mom was not letting me do that. And mm -hmm. I was 23 at the time. And so I just left. And all the while when I was on my own, I just enjoyed hearing the thoughts in my head bounce between both ears and enjoying seeing mistakes that I made and learning from them, which I wasn't able to do when I lived at home. I felt like it was the words of my parents that were in between my head. And it was, mm -hmm. there was so much noise and interference. Mm -hmm. And when I joined class, I had been already reflecting for about two years, sort of almost two years about the meaning of life and where it stood for me. And I realized that growing up as an academic, as a bookworm, as a nerd, I, the best, the best way I knew how to figure things out was to study. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why that moment that I opened that book and I was like, I'm still searching for the meaning of life. I remember I was reading the Bible every single day at that point in time as well. There's this little green Bible that I used to have and carry it around. And that book spoke to me. It seemed to be like the Bible for life. It said acting is a study of life. And so at that moment, I, I was like, I'm doubling down on this. Nice. I had no idea. See, I'm already learning about you. I didn't know is that, that the, the, that our Milton Katsalas book, which I still have, and it's sitting, staring at me on my dresser, not my dresser, my bookshelf over there. It, that, it really impacted me too. And it's, I think it's, thank you for sharing that. Cause I love understanding like what hooks a person into anything, whether, mm -hmm. whatever their passion is. But I did not know the context of where you were at when you joined class. All I remember is that, that you joined class and that you were, seemingly like kind of a fish out of water definitely not like somebody like many in the room that were like I'm an artist I'm a thespian and you know kind of diving it into that you were there for a different purpose and I think it it, it kind of exuded from you even though we didn't know yeah. if, even if I didn't know the the facts or the origin story I was like oh he's not 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 in a in a exclusive way James but I was like oh he's not like one of us he's not like one of us that are like I'm gonna go to Hollywood and like da -da -da -da, you know it was yeah. very purposeful and there was a lot of intention and a seriousness about you that I think was 
to me at least like very obvious and like I, it drove a lot of curiosity. I was like, what's this deal? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this is yeah. really fascinating. Yeah, and to give to give the a little bit more color during and after the time that I was arguing with my mom and becoming more independent, sort of disconnecting from my sort of childhood structure. Mm-hmm. I also almost died twice. And, you know, one was uh, uh, falling asleep at the wheel of my car and the other one was flipping my motorcycle. <sighs> and both of them rocked my parents and they rocked me, but in, in, a, in a strange way. Mm-hmm. I understood that I was, I was overcompensating because I had a lack of risk in my life previously. Mm. So I was going to try to find risk to eat and digest because mm-hmm. I wanted it. To, I wanted to know what it tasted like to make large mistakes. Yeah, and I wanted them to be my own and truly own them and truly learn from them. Because if you're making mistakes in spite of or for somebody else, you're not really making them for yourself. And so the learning is less remarkable for you until you finish practicing the risk. And so that's what sort of raised the stakes about me wanting to find a a reason to live. Because I I was like, I'm doing things that can make me die. Mm -hmm. And it told me and sort of validated for me that, yes, your life is your own. And the choices you you make are truly your own. Um, and the the second small anecdote is I remember auditing the class, and you know, good old Rob Zimmerman will say, <laughs> "Um, uh, <laughs> that was a great Rob students, right away." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, can all the new students please come up to the stage? So I remember I was sitting there in a chair and like. I think I was like hugging myself. I was like hugging my knee to myself because I was so nervous. Uh-huh. And he was like, so why are you here? And I was like, uh, I just wanted to, you know, learn what this class was all about because I want to, you know, I want to take acting class so I can go to business school. Mm-hmm. And I remember the room having a combination about 40% of scoffs and then 60% of like, what the fuck? Because <laughs> that's, that's an answer I've never heard in my lifetime is I want to act so I can go to business school. But I remember, I remember Rob like, like just like had a small suppressed, well-covered deer in the headlights moment. And then he nodded. He's like, okay. <laughs> As Rob, did, I can literally see him in my head. We, we love our, we love our Rob Zimmerman. He was our like yeah. godfather teacher. Yeah. Yes. But that was like, I, I love that this is that I appreciated about that from the get go was it was very honest. You're not putting on some farce of like, oh, I'm just like curious. And it's like, no, I'm here for this. And that's something that's like, I, I love picking on different, picking up on different things about people, their mannerisms, behavior. We are artists after all, James. Like I love to observe and kind of absorb what, what makes this person them, what differentiates right. them. And um, your straightforward, direct honesty was definitely... A memorable, I remember that answer because I remember I was not scoffing at you, by the way. I was not part of the 40%. Um, I was like delighted. I was like, oh, that's that's dope. Like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, so there was definitely a mixed reaction, I imagine, but my mine was not of judgment. It was like, that's that's sick. Um, yeah. I love it. And for some reason, I remember this because everyone just got really like reacted really loudly to it but i think i think there was a question of like can you talk about something that you recently have gone through or something mm-hmm. 
and I said, "Oh, I just broke up with my girlfriend、mm-hmm. by drawing a graph on a whiteboard of my happiness over the period of my relationship with her." And the entire like class was like yelling. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> What were they saying? What did they? I remember that too. I didn't know that. Again, my memory is—you know—my memory can be really shitty. But、um, I don't. I didn't realize that that was in the same conversation. What did people say? I I, I just think Jenny was like, "You need to write a script. You need to write a that sounds a short, very Jenny. Like、That's、a short film for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds very appropriate. Yeah, but I still remember it because I was so into the rationalization of this that I was like, I'm going to. You know, graph this out. Every single function of every argument that appears ever again is causes a delta to my happiness, and that happiness just keeps going down more and more whenever that function is, you know, inputted again. And so it was a, it was this crazy thing. And there's like multiple thresholds and asymptotes. Like this is the threshold of indifference. This is the threshold where like I'm just not happy. You know what I mean? It was it was crazy、um, that's, that's how I thought back then. I admire that, though. I will tell. I will tell you that I think currently, not to toot my own horn, I think the where I am with with how I deal with relationships, my time, my energy, and all that, all the stuff that's been floating around in my head and that I've been processing for quite a while, at least through COVID, I think it has reached that level of like emotional mental calculus where I actually really do think the way that you just described. I think I kind of did in increments, like get there, but now I feel like it's full on. Like, does this add value to my life? Is this exhausting me too much? Is this, you know, is if I put too much, if I put an hour more energy into this relationship or this person or this conversation, is it going to disrupt the flow of the next eight hours of my, you know, like literally? And I think that there's a lot of I really admire that. Is what I'm saying. It's tooting my own horn, and it's also to <laughs> admire you for. The rigor that you're applying to trying to figure out your own happiness, like I respect that you're you're really trying to find an answer. And so, whatever you had at your disposal, which is this very mathematical, calculating, you know, process, good on you. And that's what I think distinguishes you. And that's why everyone's like, you should write a script about that because I don't like. I I used to always think that everybody, you know, when you're younger and you're naive and you don't know other people because you have not yet interacted to the, with them on a depth of like understanding how they tick. I always thought that people more or less thought the way that I did,、um, for better or worse, right? And like, so when I find、yeah. out how pe- people actually think and the way that they come to their conclusions, the way that they problem solve and all that, fascinated by it. And in some cases, like appalled because I'm like, you really didn't think about it, did you? <laughs> like,、um, yeah, I mean, yeah. for me, like it's always been, how do I figure out how to make a kind of happiness,、mm. or how do I make a, a formula or a definition of happiness that will always sustain me in the most fundamentally easy fashion? Right? It's, it's, it's very, very much like、goal. a physical. It's like a physical work function. Like I put in a little bit, and I get a lot out of it. I don't think there's anything really wrong with that, but I do think that in terms of its like overall consistent applicability, that's pretty flawed. That's my conclusion.、Right. Like you can't. That's the beauty and shittiness of life. You cannot have a formula because it's always going to throw you a curveball. That like, you know what I mean? It's like does not、yeah. apply. Everything you 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 calculated, it it suddenly for some reason becomes completely irrelevant. So that's、right. then you're then you're fucked. You're like I had it figured out, and then you know got you know 
knocked on your ass for XYZ reason, which I, being the romantic that I am, I'm like, well, that's what makes life beautiful and interesting. But it also, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 easier it's easier said than done and f- for my particular mix of experiences and whatever method of digestion or processing that I'm using mm-hmm. it's been it's been good to have at least some kind of true north that mm-hmm. I could look towards and and remind myself that like you are happy because you're making the choices to be happy. Yeah. That's nice. So simple. Not easy, but simple. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, so the in the conversation that you and I had previously recorded um, at an earlier point in time, I have no sense of time, so I don't know when the hell that was. It was sometime during pandemic. But, yeah. um, you know, we had talked a lot and got to catch up and, and dissect like a lot of our, our we're going through a lot of awakenings and like self-awareness, which I I feel like is a constant. I, I really enjoy that, even though it gets tiring at times, but recognizing concepts of like the ugly duckling syndrome. We talked about um, realizations that you're having being like, I'm going to categorize as being a late bloomer. And all these things that you're talking about, which, you know, we've already kind of dived into, which is you talking about taking really, really big risks. And that alludes to like how controlling your mom was and your parents were in terms of like the direction of your life and things like that. And then you're you're sharing that you're nerdy and all these things. You and I have had very contrasting experiences growing up since we were young. And actually, we grew up in similar areas because I grew up in Cupertino. You're out in like Saratoga. Um which is a little bit different than different vibe than than my yeah. neck of the woods. But like I was like an early bloomer and you're a late bloomer. So I just think that there's so much there to to unpack because everybody out there, I imagine, falls somewhere in between our extremes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's so much that it does to like our sense of self, our self-esteem, our self-worth, like our experiences that color our future decisions as adults onward, right? Like you went and almost died twice. And free, like the mama bear in me is like having a panic attack, hearing your stories about like, yeah, don't do that anymore, James. Um, but like all those experiences and how we grew up and being earlier late bloomer, I just want to unpack some of that with you because you had within your lifetime thus far, you've gone through really extreme extremes from one end to the other too. Mm-hmm. And you've learned a lot from that, from what I understand, what you shared yes. with me. And if you're open to that, I think that there's a lot, there's a lot there. So I'm curious, I will just start, I can start by sharing, like I was really an early bloomer qualified by Again, I don't even know what the metrics are around that. But I'll say I was an early bloomer because I was into boys really, 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 really young, like early. Mm-hmm. I interacted with them early, had crushes on them openly early, had boyfriends very early, went through pure puberty, even out of like my grade and whatever, really early. Um, I just feel like I compared to a lot of friends, I kind of fast-tracked some stuff or I like had early exposure. Um and therefore had a familiarity with like romance, dating, my body, my sexuality, myself. Like I felt like I was very, very early bloomer. Like mm-hmm. I went through puberty at like 10. Maybe I wasn't even 10. 
and you were like, like in AP 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 puberty <laughs> class. You know what though, James? I will not. That was not under my control, so I cannot take credit for that. <laughs> oh, okay. Those are the cards you, that were dealt to me, and that's what I you, dealt you with. You still got a five though. Oh, thank you. I don't think so. Like my adolescence would I could argue otherwise. Uh I had a pretty fucked up um teenage experience because of that. But I also like that was the, those are the cards that I was dealt. So like when you you do you define yourself as a late bloomer? I would say I would say definitely in many ways I was okay. late to late to socialize, late to understand what it meant to communicate, late mm. to understand friendships and relationships truly. Um, late to understand uh, more about what I want, I think, mm. and instead explore about what I could have or could be. And so I think that's the difficult part of me having that sort of ugly duckling syndrome, which um, you so aptly put. I don't know where it came from, but very, very uh, proper. I think in the beginning, I was, you know, I had no idea what I seemed or how I looked. And that wasn't something that was taught to be my parents, except to make sure that my face was washed and that I, you know, that I was clean, but Mm -hmm. you know, they hope like the, the Asian American experience, you know, being, you know, American born Taiwanese, you know, born in Alabama, (laughs) you know, they dressed me with like those big, thick round glasses with turtle shell uh, patterns on it. And then they Cute. dressed me in like an orange and blue rugby sweater with khaki <laughs> pants and Asics oh. running shoes. You know what I mean? Do you have a and copy just, of that photo? Can we like? <laughs> uh, I, I need to pull it up. But just like saying all of that combination, you know, having been a little bit in fashion makes me cringe. But mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, my mom really had a unique sense of fashion for me. <laughs> and then, oh. you know, the the. When I went, I was, I grew up in, in San Jose, um, more sort of lower middle class. And my classmates were largely, uh, you know, black, Latino, um, Vietnamese, Filipino, uh, and then some white people, Mm -hmm. but it was very diverse and everyone would just physically push and shove and tackle each other at lunch. It was like physical touch and fighting wasn't like uncommon. So it wasn't like the moment you touch someone, you get suspended. And then I moved to Saratoga, which is, you know, very upper class, like basically half white, half Asian, Yeah. but you know, no Southeast Asians. And it was maybe one black person. Right. And it was such a different experience. I was shocked that everyone would just verbally abuse me behind my back and maybe to my face, but they wouldn't bother to attack me physically. And so I didn't know how to deal with that because they would make fun of my appearance. They would make fun of my, the book I was reading. They would make fun of my backpack. I'm like, I didn't realize that there was a guideline for such a thing in, in like a richer neighborhood. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to deal with it. And I went home and talked to my mom and I was like, Hey mom, like, can I like get in a fight? Cause like, I think at the time I was, I was like a green belt in karate. (laughs) So, oh my gosh. My mom's like, nope, this is the only school in Saratoga, and this is why we moved to Saratoga. Please do not fight. You'll get suspended and we'll get kicked out. You asked like, your mom that? if you could fight though? Yeah, I was I was trying to be a good son. Oh wow. And she's like, go outside and run and do push-ups. <laughs> and so I did. And then Day. 
unbeknownst to me back then, I got really jacked, Mm -hmm. you know, like I was, I had a six pack when I was what, like 10 maybe. Yeah. I was about to ask you, how old are you? But I didn't know what that meant. Like I didn't, I, there was no sense of vanity about it. There was, it was just a function of my anger, Mm. you know? Because you had to have an outlet for all the, all the stuff you were going through. Exactly. So every single moment of stress, whether it was from studying or from being bullied, it went into this compartment called anger. There was no other emotion, right? Mm -hmm. If I felt sad, if I felt lonely, if I felt ashamed, if I felt embarrassed, if I felt like anything, it just became this burning rage. And, and then I did like hundreds of pushups every night and every day. Well, at least, I don't know, like, I feel like my dad would have been really proud of you <laughs> because <laughs> that's what he was trying to get my brother to do to channel his anger. And my, it didn't work. My brother was the one who, you know, fighting. But like, and I, I love that you it further expanded in terms of your what you're sharing about the way that you're approaching and, and interacting with life. I framed it from a very like romantic and sexual point of view, but like, I didn't even expand on like the friendship part because that's something I think I might have even taken for granted growing up because I didn't have that same issue um, of socializing. So like I really appreciate that from like hearing you share what yours yours is a very kind of like holistic viewpoint of defining your late bloomer ship or whatever. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't, I didn't get to think about romance. I didn't get to think about sex because I thought no one would want me at all. Mm. I I didn't get to, it wasn't, I wasn't qualified. So anytime that I thought about it, it was like, I I was, I was ashamed of it. You know Mm. what I mean? And so I didn't get to develop that until much later. So very much a late bloomer on the sexual side of things. Also the identity of not, not knowing if, you know, any girl would like me meant that I I had no ability to think down that rabbit hole. And like my parents also were like, don't waste your time dating. Don't waste your time with hanging out and friends. It doesn't matter. And so my parents' instructions and my, and my, and my want to be a good son and also just to figure out a direction. I just want to know, tell me where to go and I'll go there. And mm-hmm. I want it to be clean and I don't want to have to think about all this. And I sort of buried myself into academics and just being physically strong because of my stress as a better outlet, but I shut off my social side completely because of the sort of the environment at school. Wow. That's, that's kind of for, for me, for me hearing that, I mean, I, myself, I considered myself, no, realistically, if we're going to be objective about it. I wasn't as great of a daughter as I thought I was, but in my mind, as when I was growing up, I thought I was like a good kid, right? Cause I was more or less mm-hmm. a rule follower, but I think yours is like completely next level. Like compared to you, I'm like a beast, beastly, <laughs> disobedient, bratty little child. Cause at the end of the day, I think it was never like my parents' wishes that won. It was my wishes that won. And if I cared to care about them, then fine, I'll go with it right? Or if like church says that, but at the end of the day, I think my obedience level has always been questionable. You know, the irony of it is I ran away from mm -hmm. home to go to church because I liked to go at church. Wow. How, when you're how old? I was, I think I was like 13. You ran away to church. 
Yeah. <laughs> I know. Then. It's so funny. Like the bar is so low for me because I was like, oh, I don't belong here. You know? And, you know, and you, I had so many urges and feelings. And also because of my physical abilities, I must have had like a spike in testosterone. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know where to put it except for exercise. And still, of course, like I, I wanted to like be outside the box. And so it was difficult for me to understand like where I should put it. And, you know, like after I never had the chance to like socialize, hang out. I never had the chance to really go to any dances after my my mom saw one dance in Saratoga and she saw how the girls dressed and she was like, nope, you're Hell not going to no. anything ever again. I didn't go to prom. <laughs> I didn't go to junior or senior prom. It was like, yeah, it was a zero from then then on. My mom got freaked out. Wow. And your mom was like, super sad. and also, well, you know me, I'm just saying this for the, the audience, anyone listening. I'm not laughing at James. I'm just laughing because of all the memories of all the contrasting experience that I've gone through and the people I know. I'm not laughing at you. <laughs> you, you can I, you can laugh at it if you want. No, it's just because you're just such a, what a what kind of good child goes and runs away to church? Like, uh, I was like the yeah. It just I'm shaking. I'm laughing at myself. I'm just like oh god, I'm such a heathen. Anyway, um, not to make it about me, but that's what it was evoking in me. Um, I I had the heathen part later in life. Yeah, yeah, don't we? I mean, have I ever stopped yeah. though? Uh, <laughs> but that that I think is very very revealing. I don't know. I just I'm picturing young young James who has this very strong desire to just like I don't know, figure it out. It just seems like you've always really wanted to understand why, how, what, like tell me what to do, why this matters and like I'll do it. It's I was very committed. It's different than like other kids that are kind of just like floating. <laughs> um yeah. and really kind of I felt like I I've always been like super emotional and really sensitive, ultra romantic, like boy crazy, very pie in the sky. And I was very fortunate to have a really sociable side to me. So like because I was constantly entrenched in like some kind of, you know, adolescent drama of some kind. I was always really occupied with that. So I feel like, I don't know. I just admire the fact that you're, it feels like you have like this elevated sense of consciousness about like, about everything. Whereas I'm just like, not floating, but I'm just kind of like swimming in all this angst and like drama and uh curiosity and mistakes and all that stuff which again i i do think at the end of the day is like was to my benefit i'm grateful for all those experiences but it would have been nice to it sounds like you just had you were more mature <laughs> no yeah. i mean i wouldn't yeah. i wouldn't contrast yourself negatively to me i would say that i'm really good at suppressing controlling and managing mm. so, almost too good at it that you know like initially when rob first met me he expected me to have the inability to release myself and which was true in many ways except for anger yeah um and that's always something that i that i'm striving to do more now is i realize that after your habit is being closed for so long you actually forget what it means to be open and so Mm. when you try to be open you don't know where to point yourself Mm. uh, except to try not to be closed and so you know for at least the last you know couple decades i would say I've been struggling to like understand what does it mean to be open, especially in the last, uh, I would say, half decade is more like truly reserving judgment and transforming myself, which I did actually from an INTJ to an INFP. Oh, yeah, you did. 
We talked about yeah. the, the, our, our... And that was like four years ago, three or four years ago. Love it. Okay, we. I love this. We're going to take a really quick break and we'll be back to talk more about early and late blooming, et cetera, et cetera. We'll be right back. Sounds good. Hey, Ryan, what's black and white and red all over? I don't know, Robin. Two nuns having a chainsaw fight? Dude, inappropriate. Come on, man. This is supposed to be a podcast promo for our secret underground podcast, Quarantine Comics. Oh, yes. Quarantine Comics, the weekly comic book club where I, ace reporter Ryan Joe, and I, mild-mannered Robin Sutton, team up to discuss some of comics' greatest works. Or just some really cool comics that we've been wanting to read. From Alan Moore to Uzumaki. From Arrakis to Zendaya. From Adrian Tomine to Jean Lu Yang. You might might not have heard of half the stuff that we're reading. Or the other half is just pop culture superhero stuff. They could just read the books with us, right? Yes, they could do that, but you could also just send us money. No, Ryan, that's not how passion podcast projects work. Why in the hell are we even doing this? Uh, I'm sure we'll be back by next week's episode. <clears throat> so, tune in each week to Quarantine Comics. That's qtdcomics.com. Set phasers to fun. Hey, first of all, fam, if you're a fan of the show and would like to support, consider backing us on Patreon. You can join our Discord community and get different perks by going to patreon.com slash firstofallpodcast. If you'd like to support in other ways, you can go check out firstofallpod.com or subscribe and leave a five-star rating on your favorite platform or just follow me on Instagram because I love hearing from you. Thank you all so much for the support and enjoy the show. So we're back from our break. How are you feeling? Good. Uh, yeah. Still there's relaxed. a lot of yeah. Well, still relaxed, but I think my body is like waking up in different areas of unconscious memory and telling me that you know I still have tension from the past. Hmm. That makes sense. Well, honestly, I want to say like I'm just so grateful that you're so open about all these things. I've been really lucky to have friends who open up to me really deeply about their innermost feelings and thoughts and experiences. And I feel really honored and fortunate for that. But I do also think I know that it's different level to publicly share that in, you know, a public forum where everybody can tune in and have take away whatever they will. Like, I just want to say thank you at this yeah. point for being so Of course, open. of course. It's, I mean, I, I think it's difficult, but I try to ignore it as much as possible, you know, mm -hmm. given that a lot of us think and feel and are defined by their public image. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, well, if I want to learn more, why not be open about it? And why not just be an open book? Good for you. Thank you. We're, we're all better for it, I think. If I may, okay. like... Before we fast forward, because I'm very, I'm, I'm just like, I'm just, uh, I'm ready to get to like the heathen days because there's a lot to unpack <laughs> there. But before that, I mean, I want to just reflect on this because I'm, re I'm reliving a lot of the good and bad and the ugly that I went through. I went through such extremes in my adolescence, right? And I've shared that in various parts in this podcast about, um, you know, from dating, but also just 
my own self-worth issues and things like that. And I do think that it's interesting because I don't know what it's like to be a late bloomer and to not have access to those experiences in the way that you did. Um, I did have my own form of like controlling people in my life and that was to small degree my parents, but they gave me a lot of freedom, but to a large degree was my ex, right? The the abusive one who was doing everything in his power to control my every move. But prior to even everything leading up to that, if I reflect on my sense of self that is being developed on the daily, like at school, at church, Korean school, all that stuff, right? It's like, it's so much shifted and shaped by the people that were around. Our environments really do influence the way that we perceive ourselves, right? And for me, as a young person, I was really insecure and really, really trying to be popular a lot. I can consciously remember that, that I was always in this hyper-aware state, which I think is very normal for a lot of children, and especially in middle school. Like, dude, fuck middle school. It's the worst. Like, And if you're open to sharing like what you went through, because you mentioned you were like bullied and stuff, like I was constantly in this anxious, hyper-vigilant state of awareness of like social hierarchy. And I was always like paying attention to like what the trends were, who's cool, who has the social capital. And if I associate with them, like how much does that rub off on me? If we, we didn't have Instagram or any of that stuff in my day, we had like studio pictures, right? We had like, we had school pictures. We had, there was like so many different ways that the, this exchange was happening on the daily, right? To inform you and everyone else, like what your standing is in the ranks. And I was always really in awe of like the super pretty girls. And there are some really popular girls that I wouldn't even qualify as being like the prettiest girls, but they were really, really charismatic or they had really great fashion and style. Um, their hand, like different things, even like how dope their handwriting was. I kid you not. Stuff like that, like gave people status. And that all influenced me a lot because I was I'm Korean as fuck. So I had really, really critical family members in my life, always nitpicking at my appearance. So it was just really interesting for me, like collecting data, right? All the time of where my standing was and how I could, how I should look at myself, which I hate that word, but how I should consider myself in terms of where I stand in the grand scheme of things in this little ecosystem of middle school or even even elementary school, how cool I am based on what I wear, who likes me. Um, it's just so many different things. Like it's just all rushing back to me as you're like sharing your stories and I'm like, like try to walk through that with you. It's reminding me of how much I was so like, it was a, it was like a great time. I, I thought my childhood was honestly really great, but it was also so like angsty. It was so stressful because I was always trying to measure myself against mm-hmm. someone else with having like a dad, grandma, grandma's sister, like different people in my life criticizing me all the time and like telling me that I wasn't pretty enough for my name, that I needed plastic surgery. You know, before I was even 10, like my grandma and my dad like joke, well, my grandma was serious about it. My dad joked about it, but both of them like told me that I needed to fix my face. Just so fucked up. <laughs> like, but it's very normal in Mm -hmm. Korean culture, which I want to stop normalizing because that shit is ridiculous. Um, 
But yeah, I just had like a really skewed sense of self. And I was always definitely searching whether I was conscious of it or not, like really searching for validation, searching for acceptance. And also just, I wanted to, I think because I was so hungry for my dose of popularity that it was going to give me something to hang on to that gave me some sense of self-worth, which I really didn't have much of. I think I had a really big ego though, because I would grab at whatever the hell I could to like inflate myself. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So when you were in middle school though, so you're like deep into your time with Saratoga, because I was not, I was a a stone's throw away over in Cupertino, which is very close to where you were. But there was definitely a different vibe because my school is a little bit more rough around the edges. And you went to straight up like Saratoga, from what I recall, was like the rich town. It's like where the rich kids lived. Yeah, yeah. And got dropped off in their <clears throat> Mercedes. I don't know what the hell. I didn't know. Or they drove were. a Mercedes. Yeah. Yeah, or they drove one. Yeah. But when you're at Saratoga around these rich kids, and it was a very Asian-American school, like, I would imagine just, I'm being stereotypical, but it's also true because I grew up there, that there are hella nerds there. Or there are a lot of nerdy people. Like, weren't there, were they all bullied? Were you kind of especially picked on what do you think was behind that i think there was the same sort of school cliques that you see in all the mainstream films yeah so very much described by that and i really didn't fit in anywhere except for i was a boy scout so Mm. i was i hung out the most with my boy scout troop and we were a collection of nerdy jocks like we had like cross-country runners and like one football player and like soccer players and they were all decently smart and loved talking about science and math and achievement and all that but they were also somewhat athletic so i got along actually decently well with them but i never felt like one with them because i i was never i had closed off my definition of friendship right Mm. so i was just this abnormal satellite sort of orbiting I remember at lunch in high school, I would go sit in my math teacher's class. I think it was like trigonometry and do my homework and talk to her once in a while. Or Uh I would go to the weight room and weight lift. Why did you shut yourself off? Because it was my best understanding of how to be safe from Mm. other people talking about me. And it was horrible because it, it, it made me closed for so much of my life that it was hard for me to understand how to trust other people and let them in. Yeah. Even to this day. I've, I feel that even though, again, my experience is really different, but there's, there's so many different ways that people can hurt you to, or betray you or just create a, a place where you like, you don't feel safe. So yeah, my heart breaks hearing that. I'm not, I don't like that. And that sucks. But I also know, I mean, I'm not trying to romanticize it, but I, I know that like, you know, what you overcome strengthens you. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure that it deepened. I mean, fast forward. So when you were able, when do you feel like you were able to move past that or start building trust with other people? And was that college? Was that when you're like into your engineer life and you're like, feeling more so because you had the freedom. I think I had a couple of relationships in college. I think that was when I understood that I could sort of recreate my image. Okay. Um, But even then I still didn't understand how to create it. All I knew is that like people did understand and respect my physical strength. And so that was something that 
I only knew how to like release myself into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was still so afraid of rejection that every single girl that I dated or talked to was someone who chased me, you know? And so I really didn't know how to choose at that time in my early twenties or my late teens, because I only chose the people that came after me. So I was so sure that I wouldn't fail and feel rejected Mm. that I was like, Oh, okay, good. You know, I think this person likes me. I think, you know, I'll hang out, but I had no idea dating that whole process of like getting flowers and stuff. I was like, so like immature about it. I was pretty much a child about it, you know? Yeah. How did that? So it sounds like that was when you're, you're going through boot camp, kind of. And I totally mm-hmm. understand that. Honestly, as, as, as a girl too, like I, I felt similarly growing up that like, because I believed I was ugly or that I didn't have game or whatever. Like I believed my options were limited and I needed like at certain points, like, I mean, I was also very, I was just a dreamer, you know, I was like, Oh, so-and-so is beautiful. I, I would love to like date them or whatever. But I think there was a part of me that really believed like I should be happy with whoever shows interest in me. Yeah, I had that too. And also the racial implications of being an Asian male. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, you grow up with so much shame and you grow up with so little, so few role models of under of, of an Asian male who understands his sexuality. I yeah. grew up with Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Jet Li. Those are my role models role models and all they knew how to do was were were pretty much fight Mm -hmm. they had no sex scenes right yeah and so you you didn't you just didn't late you didn't even think they could do that right you know there was no reference point for an asian male being sexy or being attractive or you know getting the girl like that doesn't happen in 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 our in our media when we grew up Mm -hmm. and so i had to i was lost and I didn't want to feel lost. I wanted, I wanted control and I wanted direction and I wanted to be sure. So I never really knew what that was like. And I sort of had to figure out that on my own. Right. Did you ever, how did you then, if you didn't feel like you saw Asian men, but when you saw men in general in media, right? So like, for example, I was, I had a semi-conscious awareness that like there are no Asian female role models for me, right? Mm-hmm. But by default then, like I really, I was a huge pop culture consumer, Right. I loved movies and music and I was constantly aware of what was going on in, in on the scene. Um, so I, then, you know, I kind of took what I had, which was white women, black women. I loved I really gravitated towards black culture. So a lot of my influences of like what I perceived, not necessarily of myself, but in general, what I perceived to be desirable, sexy, um, attractive ended up being depictions outside of me. Which is why I always wanted to like be Kelly Kapowski because I she's freaking beautiful, right? And she's the hot cheerleader. Um, mm. But like, so what? So then, what were your role models like? Like, you didn't have the Asian American role model. Who who were people that you, whether you wanted to or not, you wanted like aspired to be like? Who was kind of the the man in your eyes? The collection for me was Jackie Chan, Jet Li, and Bruce Lee, true fighters and warriors who Got like it. fought fought for and they were good people too so there was integrity Mm -hmm. and then the other people also for me were malcolm x you know frederick Douglass, 
Black Panthers. Got it. You know, the and Martin Luther King, the people that I, I remember reading the autobiography of Malcolm X because I went to the library a lot. And the kind of underdog mentality and how well they fought and how well they spoke and how well they like resisted really became another part of my fighting spirit that blended with the, the sort of Bruce Lee warrior mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, and the problem was when you feel like an underdog all the time, you don't know when you're, you've become the winner or you don't know how to assume any kind of spotlight or any kind of achievement. Right. And the so tough thing is you always have imposter syndrome. You always second guess yourself. Mm-hmm. You always feel like you're not enough. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I've, I mean, I've had, I think I've had more than one episode on this podcast just talking about Asian male masculinity, because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Even though I myself am not male identifying, I have my perception and my experiences interacting with it and my very strongly held opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, I, I get, I get really mad. Like people have heard me curse up a storm. Cause I just, I will say it, I will reiterate it here. I think it's fucking inhumane how a lot of mainstream media, at least in America, which exports culture to the rest of the world has made it their joy to make fun of Asian men, Asian people in general, but Asian men in particular too, like deliberately and viciously in a lot of cases, in my opinion, emasculate and just like, like bully them in media. And I think it's fucking ridiculous. And I've seen so many examples of it played out in real life too, in front of my own eyes. And I've had new people in my life that have dealt with it too. And it makes me very, 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 very mad. Very mad. So uh, that will also be in my memoirs and I'll be making films about it. You know this, Um, but just, I need to reiterate it here because uh, yeah, I still think that. And I think it's yeah. ridiculous. And and to know how much it can truly impact an actual person's actual life and the way that they perceive themselves or don't perceive themselves and the ways that it can impose limitations. Again, to go back, I think every person is dealt a different set of hand of cards and like you have to deal with what you have to, I, I obviously. But it's just like, I also don't believe just because it's been the way that it is does not mean in any way that we need to keep perpetuating the same behavior and same thing. So I'm calling this shit out because I want it to stop, right? Mm -hmm. I do think that there are a lot of Asian men that I know that are incredibly resilient, have done so much inner work as a result of this emasculation. Um, And this, this, whether it's nature or nurture, I don't know. But like a, a lot of my Asian male friends, I, that I personally know have gone through being a late bloomer, right? And there's a lot of pros and cons to that. Cause I, I can say as like an early bloomer, I've gone through a tremendous amount of trauma and a lot of really fucked up experiences because I was an early bloomer with little to no guidance and being of the generation that I am and having MTV be like my parent in a lot of ways. Um, it's not necessarily better. And that's not the argument that I make. It's just like sharing experiences because the grass, especially when you're younger and you're watching everybody kind of blossom and thrive around you, quote unquote, thrive and like live this fabulous life that you're not privy to, that you don't have experience of being able to make out with somebody under the bleachers or whatever the hell we're told in some teen movie. Like the grass just always seems greener and maybe it is, but also a lot of times it really isn't. You know what I mean? Like what can appear to be so desirable, so fun, so X, Y, Z, can also really not be. 
and to I my from my observation, a lot of my late bloomer friends, they have cultivated a whole other set of interesting facets of their personality and character because they were not <laughs> consumed by all this other stuff that, you know, other teenagers or whatever were dealing with at that time. So there's like a I just think it's a matter of perspective, in my opinion. This is from like an outsider point of view. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? And I don't wanna I don't want to play the victim here because playing no, the victim, well, playing playing the victim also just detriments the person who's playing the victim because they're always going to feel like they're less, and the problem with that is they're always going to ask for help as well. Mm-hmm. When sometimes mm-hmm. you know they shouldn't be asking for help; they should just be looking for it within themselves for their own strength. And I think that's what I have is I have that strength. I had to compete physically with men of all races and often would be able to beat them. And at that point in time, I didn't know what to do with that confidence and that strength because I didn't have the Asian male in the movie who was the popular kid in school. He was never prom king or whatever, and he was never the one to get the girl, and he never kissed the girl, by the way. You know what I mean? So all I knew was how to achieve, and I knew how to use the best of my you know, Taiwanese side and the best of my American learnings to try to fit in and try to excel and try to be better. That's all I knew how to do for a large part all the way, probably even, even till now, even till my, you know, even till I was 30. So mm-hmm. I think it was interesting because you try your best not to accelerate your identity and accelerate your growth in spite of something, but even as a result, when you accelerate and you finish crossing that threshold and you get to the summit, you look back and you're like, well, everyone's going to see like I did it in spite of the structure of society or mm-hmm. you know the way that mainstream media looks. And it's funny because I, I tried to ignore politics and I tried to ignore um, sort of the media as much as possible because my parents didn't really let me expose myself to the media. And I couldn't relate to the media that much because I didn't see my face in the media. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then when I, I took a class, I think it was um, Asian American Studies at Berkeley in my final year there. And they talked about the dragon lady and they talked about the concept of the objectification of Asian woman mm-hmm. and the emasculation of the Asian male. Mm-hmm. And they basically don't want to show us having kids. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, it just dawned upon me. I was like, I've been seeing that around me in many ways and forms, these microaggressions in, you know, the San Jose middle school that I went to, as well as in elementary school with some of the race, racial things that were thrown at me. And I wondered where did it come from and how is it being reinforced from the top level, from the media, mainstream media standpoint. And I, all these examples were portrayed to me, you know, because I didn't really get exposed to that kind of media. And I appreciated that it was verifying that, oh, that's how it trickles down. And that's how it forms this sort of dotted positive feedback loop mm-hmm. in society that mm-hmm. constantly, in a way, oppresses us. When you're fighting back against, well, so you, it sounds, I mean, obviously you're always thirsty for knowledge and it seems like the academic route was always the best way for you to access different epiphanies, right? Because if you're not out there necessarily doing going to prom and all this stuff, you're, you're able to find it in a book or in an, some, some other form. And with this, like, and this is, you're in Berkeley. So it's also when you're having these relationships too, right? You're like dating mm-hmm. these girls. So it's like the, the blossoming of James is happening. 
when you're you're realizing that girls are chasing you and fast forward because we're gonna have to we're gonna have to condense some years but like when you were when you left behind, when you blossomed, let's go into your blooms. <laughs> You're like bloomer, but you bloomed, yeah. <laughs> you blossomed. Yes. What happened there? I would say the greatest point or not the greatest point, but the inflection point for me was a week into acting class. I think I had headshots at a showcase and the agents were there at Beverly Hills Playhouse. Yeah. And an agent came up to me and, you know, said, I like your look. And then a day later I was in their office and then a week later, they signed me. I had no idea how to do a monologue. I had no idea how to smile on camera, like because I felt I was intimidated by it. I was still nervous on stage. My knees would shake all the time. I had no idea why I got signed except for my look. Mm -hmm. I was starting to understand that I wasn't an ugly person anymore. And I had learned to switch from glasses to contact lenses. And I was wearing hard contact lenses, which made me squint. So it made me look extra stereotypically Asian, which is sad, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I just switched to soft contact lenses some, sometime later in life. I think it was like before I went to grad school. But understanding that, boom, suddenly I had an agent. And then suddenly I was being sent to do commercial auditions. I was sent to do short films. And then I was being sent. And then suddenly I did Runway. Uh, it was for like the Union Street Fair. And then... My agent liked it so much that she started putting me in a bunch of runway. And so I did a bunch of runway for a period. And then when I went to New York for grad school, I, uh, I was able to do New York Fashion Week mm. and you know walk up to the Lincoln Center and have people stop me and say, can I take your picture, please? And there was a strange moment there. And I, and I walked up and this, the person at the front was said, like, your talent, right? And they gave me a VIP badge and then led me backstage to the sort of the makeup area. And mm-hmm. then even more, this, this is the point where it clicked for me suddenly. I sat down in my makeup chair and the entire makeup team rushed up to me and started doing my face, right? Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was still like, uh-huh, I just did a bunch of like small crappy like runway jobs just to see what it was about. Cause I didn't want to like, I just wanted to learn it. I even went as far as to learn how to use concealer, how to use foundation, how to do hair, how to like contour, which is the funniest thing ever. Um, Cause I remember going to, you know, going it's to, you art. know, my, it's an art. Yes. I, I went over to my, uh, I think I was living with my, my friend at the time. He was an engineer as well. He went to Berkeley. I was like, Hey, do you see anything different about my face? <laughs> and he's like, no, I was like, I have makeup on. And he like laughed. And then I remember laughing as well. And it was just a strange experience. He must've been like, is this guy gay or something? Cause like maybe, maybe, maybe I'd take, taken a left turn in, in my sexual orientation. Could be true, but I wasn't. And I was just like, I can make myself look so different that people will think I can do X, Y, or Z. And having that ability to change my appearance from being the most ugly, most bullied, undesirable kid in middle school to having all the makeup artists rush up to me and start discussing my facial features and how to, how to do them. And I, w- I looked around the room and there's, a, there's like a really hot white model 
and a really hot Asian model and a really hot like European model. And I remember asking them later, they were from Wilhelmina, from Ford, from IMG. And I'm like, why are they, why are they picking me? Mm-hmm. I'm from some like boutique agency in New York that my friend referred me to. I didn't really care about it because I was going to business school, but suddenly they chose me first as the prototype. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I'd realized that like I had changed. The way I look has changed to the world around me. Mm-hmm. How'd it feel? I didn't know what to do. Like I didn't know what to do with the confidence because I had such a strong degree of like trying to keep myself a good person. That did it feel like it was the dark side? Did it feel like you're like... It like- did. It, it felt like the moment that I like tried to exploit it or the moment that I tried to like consume myself in it, I would become, I would become dark. Because it is. You get drunk on that power. That shit is powerful. Exactly. And that's what I was afraid of. Is, and, and I constantly played with that fire, you know, um, let's say over the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. After after getting getting an agent and starting to do commercials at you know at the age of twenty four, and I would I saw my I saw my identity start to be triggered as in like hey, people see you differently now. What are you going to do about what's inside? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's like but- is the the car has changed, but is is the engine still the same in a sense? Nice analogy. I like that. Yeah. How did you, because you, well, you shared with me like what, what fascinated me and what I've been observing a lot because like when I think of guys that I've been into and I've, I've been into a very wide, I've been attracted to a lot of different types of guys. Right. And there's, de- there's definitely kind of like the traditionally attractive athletic, you know, height, certain height, um, certain types of facial features, but like, it's not always the same. Like I have a lot of girlfriends will compare and our types can vary and people have different tastes. Right. But even within my data set, if you will, like I've liked, I've been attracted to a lot of different types of guys. There's no one specific thing like, Oh, they have to like, look like a, you know, like a football player or whatever. Um, and uh, over that time from my, since my youth, <laughs> I've noticed, you know, what are the qualities that make a person attractive? And it's really fascinating to me how you can have traditionally attractive features per se, but I can still feel absolutely zero attraction to somebody. And that's something that I've continued to explore, like dating as an adult and like being on apps and stuff like, oh, you can appreciate, oh, they're like a good looking person, but I don't feel anything towards them. You know what I mean? They don't evoke mm-hmm. like uh, an attraction or chemistry or, you know, they're not seducing me in any way. Right. There's no real like kind of essence that draws me to them. Whereas I've like been attracted to guys that traditionally are not considered attractive, but I'm just drawn to them. And it's like their confidence, their aura. And it's funny that you're talking about this inflection point because I actually heard, I think probably from TikTok or something, but There's like a story, I hope it's true. I don't know if it's 100% true, but people have shared the story about Marilyn Monroe that she was being interviewed in New York by some journalist. Maybe it was LA. I might already be messing this up. But the core of the story was she was with a journalist who was like, do you want to see me become her? Because they were in a public setting and nobody was really paying attention to her, even though she's freaking Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, she decides like, she kind of just like, holds herself differently, right? Yeah. She turns yeah. on this air of confidence. She becomes 
her. She becomes Marilyn, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, people like start gravitating towards it. They start noticing like, oh shit, that's Marilyn Monroe. So there's this anecdote. And I do see that personally, like, again, I don't know if that's, I was not there. I cannot verify, but like the essence of that, I see that in different forms. And I personally have lived that because when I feel myself and even I, if I know that I'm empirically not as attractive as chick A over there, I can, I can garner some attention or you could, you know, it's not even from the opposite sex or whoever you're trying to seduce or attract, right? It can be from everybody. I mean, this is something that is, that is, has utility in any arena, not just for like dating or sex. It's like jobs with just making friends, right? And, and all sorts of like different arenas. It's, it's, it's an essence and it's a aura that you can, I think anybody can have to either supplement or replace or serve as a replacement for like being traditionally attractive or unattractive. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And the one story that you told me that really, really was fascinating to me when you were sharing about what you experienced at your MBA program was that guys really were gravitating towards you. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. you were attracting female attention for sure. But it was like, that part was, I was really, can you share about that? Because I thought that that was really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think my MBA was like the high school and college experiences that I never had before. Yeah. It was probably my first time understanding what it meant to not be one of the sort of lower citizens in a, in a school. Mm -hmm. Like I was actually known, you know, and, and you could call it popular as well. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't know what to do with that. I remember that there was a time in business school when I think you know, we had these like CBS Matters like sessions where one of the classmates would talk about uh, their life and how they grew up and then they would be put in the hot seat and they would have to answer whatever questions were directed at them. Mm-hmm. And this girl was asked, who do you think is the hottest guy in business school? And she said, me. And that, that rumor spread like wildfire and it came into my ears and I was like, wow, what the fuck, you know? <laughs> um, and so that was it, was, it was a super different experience. And with guys and girls, I think to answer your question directly, the guys that would be drawn to me would already have some, some preconceptions of what kind of guy I was. Mm-hmm. Like, and the expectation was that, you know, you be the alpha male kind of mentality, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of wolf pack. Mm-hmm. And of course, like, I tried to be good at that. I, you know, could out drink a lot of classmates and it was, it was great because I, I wouldn't get Asian glow. So, you know, there was like this weird sense, there was this weird like hierarchy in business school, almost like a fraternity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was cool. It's like I could hang with anyone, no matter their race. Uh, and I, I, and I think that's the part about climbing through the ugly duckling phase that really I probably enjoy the most is being able to befriend anyone and everyone. Mm-hmm. How did it, you, cause there were, if I'm remembering, were there people that also judged you because of that? Cause there were people the that, time. yeah, that like that were flocking to you. And there's also people that knew, knew nothing about you as a person, but there were yeah, even, even now I think there's people that, think I'm pretentious because of the way that I look. Um, mm-hmm. 
I think that was ex- that, that exact description was said to me. Who said that to you? Uh, it was some know. some new person I met. It was just like, oh, I thought you were going to be more pretentious. I was like, why? And he's like, oh, well, because of the way you look. And in business school, people were like, oh, you're you you used to do finance, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, why would you think that? No, I used to be an engineer. And they're like floored. They're like, what? You used to be an engineer? Mm-hmm. I was like, yes. I went I went to Berkeley for Eeks and I loved it. And they're like, I thought you used to do like finance or marketing or something. And I was like, oh, okay. So like, so there was a lot of preconceptions about my career, about where I came from, about the kind of person I was from the way that I seemed. And so definitely that whole anecdote about Marilyn Monroe, I mm-hmm. think I realized that to a degree that I can do that as well. Mm-hmm. It's a very, it's a very peculiar thing to, to recognize. I think it's a very empowering thing, but like anything, and I've said this to you directly, I've said this to all my friends, cause I genuinely mean it. And I say it to myself with great power comes great responsibility. Thank you, Spider-Man. But it's like you, I've gotten angry at exes because I have dated a lot of handsome Asian men who don't realize it. And it's like a liability for me. I'm like, the fuck, dude, you have to know you're, it's like walking out with a loaded gun. You cannot be out there being like, I'm not attractive when you are. It would piss me off as a jealous, insecure girlfriend, right? Be like, Mm. that's creating a problem for me because they'd be very chummy with anybody and everybody, which is great. I love their friendliness. Um, but then like, you know, they're, there's, they're going to be so unaware that, that of the effect that they have on other people and that the, the danger that they're inviting into my life because of that, mm-hmm. like yeah. it, it would genuinely scare me. And, and I, I had similar problems in, in different formats of like my own self and that I was given feedback from different people about, oh, I thought X, Y, Z of you. I didn't think da, 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 because you look this way or you seem this way. Um, I've had a lot, and that's just being a person, right? I think a lot of people get a lot of different feedback from everybody. Like, I thought you were such and such, but specifically on the whole, like late bloomer, don't understand how handsome or charismatic you are. I'm saying for insecure partners, it's a lot to deal with because you're like, well, shit, they don't get it. And (laughs) it's tough because we go from being like the bottom of the totem pole for at least speaking from my experience to having a level of qualified confidence, but not knowing where to place it. So we, we are either in denial or we haven't grown our internal identity so much to realize how to, how to like hold that confidence in a very balanced way. Yeah. So, so that's it. why we don't, we don't know what to do with that power and it's haphazard when we let it out. Yeah. And it's dangerous. Or like, I'll say I've, I've also encountered late bloomers who like, didn't understand how much they hurt me because of that. Because that was, honestly, I'm being real about our school. We both went to Berkeley. So it was a school full of late bloomers. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, very much so. And um, because it's also context, because there's so many, like Berkeley had a lot of attractive people, but a lot of nerds too. So just like within the context of nerds, like there's the really attractive ones and there's, you know, whatever, traditionally, right? We're talking about very shallow um, metrics here. but. When people would then have access to that power that they get by realizing through different experiences and different feedback that like, oh, I'm attractive and I'm desirable when they are so used to having a lifetime of not being that, a lot of people would abuse it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they'd, yeah. there'd be hearts broken and boundaries cl- crossed and like, and this whole gross mismanagement of this power that they have. And it makes sense. Like the wounded 
college student me is like, fuck those guys. But I get it. Like, I, I, can, I would be lying if I said, like, I didn't abuse whatever, you know, I had at my disposal. It happens. Yeah. Because you're yeah, like, for oh. sure. And, and for me, too, I think <clears throat> it, it hurt a lot of people in my past relationships that I'm very apologetic for. And I'm very sincerely, like, teaching myself to do better. Uh, and also for me, it actually comes out in the other form, which is insecurity and judgment. Um, mm -hmm. and that's something that I learned a lot about, um, because of, you know, learning, learning to be more aware about the way I express myself and the way that I think in a very instinctual manner. I realized that like the INTJ in me comes out the most when I'm insecure. Mm -hmm. And so being able to like restrain myself and also be aware of where my thoughts and actions are coming from. and if they're a place for insecurity, then I manage them away. It's also that aspect of like, if you have that power, you also have more power to hurt other people. And by the way, when you're at that level of like being told that, hey, you're the hottest Asian guy in the room, <laughs> uh, which has been said to me, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting because you, you, you sort of feel good for a moment, but then you feel shitty and then you sort of don't know what to do about it. Uh, and then you sort of, your, your life goes on. It, it, it's like someone slapped you in the face. You know what I mean? It's like what, what it, it's like a stranger slapped you in the face. I don't know what to do right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I Would think I, slap I, be appropriate because that's, it's like a, it's a compliment. So it is, it's, it's like a light slap with a white oh, glove on. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> or like a feather duster in your face. You're like, yeah, like a feather happened? duster. You're like, Oh, I, I, I want to sneeze right now. Um, <laughs> That's that's the analogy I think because because it 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 may it it has very very much like made me confused for the for let's say like the past uh, eight years of like what what do I do I I don't know like which identity do I take and I think that's the toughest thing for me too that I'm still trying to decide about is like okay if I if I I, I know that I love learning and I know that I love these certain things and values. But that can define my friendships. But moving forward, what else is going to define my life? I think that's where I'm still trying to figure it out. Gotcha. Good. I mean, everybody's figuring something out, honestly. And I'm saying this as like a woman in her 30s where I'm aging. Like there's, that's a whole other ball of wax and we don't have the time to go into that. But <sighs> there's so many different markers of like what value did you place on what facet of yourself, right? And I think there for me, it's a constant humbling um, and realization of my own self perceptions, my purpose, and like what I put my intentions behind, if I'm being really honest, you know what I mean? Like there's the version that is like the lofty, nice, put on a resume version. And then there's the real one. Where it's like, yeah. no, I just want to feel hot and desirable right now because you know why? I'm in my late 30s and I just want someone to think that I look good. You know, like there's mm -hmm. like there's the honest truth that is a little bit uglier, but it's honest. And there's still stuff like that that I'm thinking about all the time, especially as I'm aging. And like you look at a you look at gorgeous creatures like, I don't know, the entire cast of Euphoria. Like they're gorgeous and they're in their 20s. My girl that plays Maddie, she's in her 30s, but she looks like she's mm -hmm. 20. And it's just, you get, for me, and like having to step back and like dismantle all the different perceptions that I've had projected on me that are not even my own thoughts, right? And and 
fighting against that and realizing like, why the hell is so much of my life conscious, like in my conscious awake moments, how much of my time I've obsessed about my looks and like stepping back from that and like how much women in general are valued primarily for their looks and not for anything else, even though they might, you know, help with world hunger and bring peace to the Ukrainian Russian crisis. They'll still be like first and foremost, appreciated for how pretty they are or are not. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's a different part of like the genders or like, and a lot of those things are, we're moving and progressing in a way where I think we're moving past a lot of those, those norms. Thank God. Um, But I still think they still apply. So there's a lot of, there's still value in us spending, you know, over an hour dissecting this because I still think that it's a very kind of like fundamental part of being a, a person is, wanting to be seen, desired, desiring others, how to interact with that and how to do it in a way that's like not harming ourselves so that we're safe, not harming others unintentionally. It's a lot. There's a lot there to like continuously learn. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack because we all want to be loved, but we also don't know who we are. And Mm -hmm. so we're trying to figure out, we're trying to figure out our frame of reference while still exchanging stimuli with the outside environment. So we're constantly changing and then we're constantly being told to change or being like perceived as changing. And so we're trying to figure ourselves out. But the problem is we're, we're still moving bodies. Um, and I think that's, that's everything. But, you know, I think the best thing about a lot of these conversations that we've had is we're always at least finding um, at some aspect of reference point, you know, to come to some point of understanding about at least the direction we're moving in. Mm-hmm. in this phase of life or sure. in a past phase of life, right? Like we, we like these stories that we tell is like, I, I, I went from A to B and that sort of taught me, you know, something about where I am now today and how that's impacted me. Good. I love it. And then you get to share it here on my podcast and then we get to <laughs> hopefully plant some seeds of thoughts and questions and answers and, catharsis i don't know for anybody who's who's tuning in it's I important i hope so yeah no i also i'd like to add i do i 100 agree with you that we all want to be loved and i also think there's just a, there's also a part of us that wants to just be desired on a very like primal level that's not um it's about safety and it's about love and 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 connection and all that I just also think on an animalistic side, which is why there's so much value that we place on beauty, right? And and our looks and our vanity, how we show up, um, and and the and the attraction element, um, that's also there. And I I don't want. I think what I realize how like puritanical American culture is, like how taboo sex is, in this, still to this day, right? Like in our in our society here in the states. Yeah. Um, as compared to other cultures. But I mean, we're Asian too. They're, they can be even way more uptight about all that stuff. Even more. Yeah, even more. It's absurd because I I personally think that it's a very natural part of life. And I don't think it's something to villainize or to demonize or, you know, like make this evil. I think resisting that has created so much more conflict, in my opinion. If we can accept the fact that we like to look and feel good in our bodies... And we like to be appreciated by others. I hope 
my hope out of that is not to drive more vanity, but it's to remove this shame and this like angst that we feel for wanting to feel that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if, if, if I feel pretty, I don't want to feel like I'm an asshole for wanting to feel pretty. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I, I, I struggle with that still. There's yeah, a part there of me be, that's like, I can't. There should be a healthy way of accepting, you know, even to a level of superficial attractiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And also couple with, again, couple with, uh, not just couple, it's like attached with many other aspects, which is also that my looks are not my only currency, nor do I want them to be. Also, so there's so many types for everybody just because like, oh, I don't have a million and like, you know, I'm not a Kardashian and have like 20 million people following me and drooling over my thirst traps doesn't mean that I'm not a desirable person, right? Like what measuring stick are we using? So it's a lot yeah. of different things. A lot of things it there. Is. Um, but I'm just, I'm glad that you are more, I just like, I don't want to like call it out for you, but I feel from your, from you as your friend that you've come into a lot more self acceptance and maturity with all of that. Because I do, from what you've shared with me and like, you know, our friendship, I know that it, it's been, it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. And there's been a lot of experiences, good and bad, that have come out of this, the second act of yours. <laughs> and yes, I'm, and I'm, I'm like, so. I'm really proud of you as your friend. Like, I'm just grateful that you, you sit and think as deeply as you do about it and that you're willing to be open about it and evolve. Cause like, what else can we ask for as people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's still more that I'm unpacking to this day, you know, with, you know, acting class and with voice lessons, like all of it is still like showing me different ways to learn about myself mm -hmm. and, and how to how to truly be relaxed and happy at the same time, with, you know, without having to try. Yeah, good. I love it, James. I am so grateful we had this conversation. I have a lightning round element that I've added to my podcast. So, okay. if you're ready, we can close out this amazing conversation with three questions that I'm asking all my guests. Okay. Okay. First and foremost. First of all, <laughs> at the very end, I'm like, first of all, um, what are you grateful for? I am grateful for my health, mm. my ability to eat food that I cook, and also to be able to work out as hard as I do. And I know you know about that. Mm. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to truly being more open. And trusting mm. without judging. I like that. Actually, just recently I had a conversation with someone who was like, you can, you can be open and still be really guarded. Because mm -hmm. there's a difference between being open and vulnerable. So just yeah. food for thought. But yeah. Um, lastly, what are, what, are the la uh, what are the final words that you want to leave our listeners with? What would you like to impart? Um, I think for especially Asian Americans, anyone who's listening for that matter, give it a chance to share yourself with other people and to take the risk and be okay if what you experience after that requires you to change. Because in the end, that's what life is all about. I think a lot of people are, including myself, are so rooted in their routine and they feel safe in understanding and expecting things. But I think the best thing is to to do things that are unexpected while you still can. 
um, and to help you stay on your toes. Love it. It's great. Thank you, James. Also, where can people, f- do you want them to follow you? <laughs> do you want to plug anything? Your uh, socials? They don't have to, but you can share my Instagram if you want. Doesn't, okay. I, yeah. I, you know, I don't care about this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. And also it'd be hard to spell it out because you have a, a, a special spelling of your Instagram. Yeah, it's, it's super funky. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a second to figure out, but once I did, I felt like a genius. Um, yep. But I will share it in the description. But in summary, thank you for being a guest on my show for the second time, technically. Yeah. <laughs> First publicly. And yeah, thank you for sharing your story. It is my honor and my delight. Thank oh, you. Oh, lovely. I love that we always go back to the British. Always. Always. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, James. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode with James talking about being a late bloomer. James, thank you for being such a great guest and being so open about your your story, your journey. And if you'd like to follow along with his his life, go check out his Instagram. I have a link for it in the description. I mentioned earlier that the spelling's a little bit tricky, so I'm saving y'all a favor by not reading it out loud because I wouldn't do that to you. But yeah, he's a great chef too, so you can see some of his food photos and whatnot. But thank you guys again for tuning in and thank you to Marvin Yue, my audio engineer and producer. Thank you to my producer, Anna Sun and my social media marketing manager, Juliana Deer. I love you guys very much. I'm a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, which is a collective of Asian American podcasters and storytellers. If you guys have not checked it out yet, go uh, check out the book Rise. Last week's episode was with Phil Yu, Angry Asian Man, and Jeff Yang, uh, who co-authored it with Phil Wang from Wong Fu Productions. I got my copy in the mail. It is absolutely beautiful. Honestly, the artwork itself with Julia Kuo is so beautiful. And yeah, there's just so many goodies. It's a very interactive book. It's not like a textbook that's boring with just a couple pictures and words. There's a whole mess of things. There's like comic book, etc. Like, just go check it out and support the Asian American diaspora. If you enjoyed this episode and like to share it with a friend, you can find, first of all, on all the podcast platforms on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. Please leave a five-star review and subscribe. I really appreciate it. I love that folks have been leaving their reviews for me on Spotify. It's a new feature. Love you guys. Thank you. And thank you again to my Patreon patrons for helping me keep the podcast afloat. If you'd like to contact me or support the podcast, you can go to firstofallpod.com or email me at firstofallpod at gmail.com. You can also follow along on Instagram at firstofallpod or my personal page at Minjeezy. Thank you to Uzu Han for use of his song Uzu Trap for our intro. And this week's outro is provided by my girl Lee J, who I've known since her early days in collaboration Seattle up in the Pacific Northwest. And her single, Follow You Down, is our outro song this week. Beautifully made with live piano, live strings, with cello, viola, and violin. It's absolutely beautiful. She's an amazing, true musician. And uh, feel free to check out the First of All Featured Song playlist on Spotify if you want to check that out. We have so many great musicians who've contributed to the show. In the meantime, take care of yourselves and keep your eye out for next week's episode, which is the last one of season two. Can you believe it? We've already reached the end. Uh, But yeah, take care of yourselves. I love you and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.
Hi, I'm Marvin. And I'm Rira. And we're the hosts of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast dedicated to books by Asian and Asian American authors. Each month, we pick a book by an Asian author to read and discuss on the show. We read a variety of genres, including contemporary and historical fiction, sci-fi and fantasy, romance and cozy mysteries, and so much more. Our past book club picks have included Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Ribeye, Grace of Kings by Ken Liu, and The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. Every month, we also go through the latest news in Asian American literature, as well as chat with some awesome Asian authors about their works. So whether you want to start reading for fun again or diversify your TBR list, we got your Asian literature cravings covered. For more info, check out our website at booksandboba.com, and you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.